Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm glad to be here on this beautiful Sunday morning, uh, even though it's like 45 degrees outside. Uh, I missed that 70-degree weather from earlier in this week. But uh, with that being said, it is still a great and beautiful morning to worship the Lord. Well, today, as you can see, I'll be uh, presenting the sermon, Loss of a Pastor. So as you guys have all known, Daniel has uh, stepped down from his position at the pastor here and uh, with that comes a lot of different emotions. We have hurt feelings, uh, the loss of a loved one almost. Uh, I was talking with some of my brothers and sisters uh, this week, um, and they were asking, like, how are you doing? And I just really was vulnerable with them and said, it's like I lost a family member. It's, it's a painful experience, and that Sunday felt like a funeral almost is the way I explained it. And they said, yeah, that's usually how when a pastor steps down, it feels. And it's because we have such an emotional connection with them, right? They're someone that's led us through battles of faith, someone who's led us in the growing and equipping, and someone who we learn from in basic senses about the Bible. So as I was praying about this and looking uh, at Scripture, trying to figure out, well, what do you want me to preach this morning, Lord? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is what came up. Uh, now, a little bit about 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinth was a church that Paul pastored, and uh, he left after one of his missionary, missionary journeys. He stayed there for close to a year, and after he left, uh, another apostle named Paulos came, Apollos came in and started to teach as the pastor. And uh, with this, the people were hurt and broken. So we're just going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 real quick. And I think it's up on the bill. It won't come up. All right. Well, I can read it. Hopefully you can. All right. Well, we'll do it the old school way. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 3 through 7. For you were still of the flesh. For while I was there, there is jealousy and strife among you. You are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Paulus, you are not being merely human. Or are these beings not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos, or I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So here we see that uh, Paul is confronting divisions. And the divisions come up from people saying that they follow one of the leaders of the church before. Now, we don't know if Apollos was still the pastor at that time of the church whenever Paul's writing this. Uh, some sources say yes, and other sources say no, he had moved on as well. So what we see is that the people are divided among, well, who do we follow? Do we follow Paul or do we follow Apollos? What Paul is writing here is he's like, no, you've missed the point. Paul or Apollos doesn't matter who is the leader. What matters is the message that they brought, which is the glory of God. You are to trust in him, not in your teachers and your overseers. He's addressing these divisions because people like to factionize, right? Think about the pol politics of the world today. It's become highly uh, against each other, two opposite poles that seem to have nothing in common. The church is called to be different. We have unity, and that unity is in Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians that uh, after Paul left, so I told you a little bit that he was there for about a year, similar situation to us, as we had the pastor 
here for a year or a little over. And in that year, those people grew close to Paul. They learned from him. Obviously, we can read the letters of Paul and see he was probably a pretty good pastor. Uh, he had a lot of information to give, and he was an apostle. So he knew God intimately and knew how to teach about Christ in the way that Christ himself would have taught. So Paul would have been this great, great pastor. But then this new guy comes in, Apollos. As Apollos starts teaching the same way. And we don't really have any writings from Apollos. We have some uh, like estimations of what he said by other church fathers. And a lot of the things that he taught were the exact same as what Paul taught. So the difference is, is just in the style that they presented themselves. Apollos was a Greek man, and he was learned in Greek grammar, and so he could teach in Greek in an eloquent way. Paul, however, he was trained in Greek, but not in sophisticated Greek. He was not like, uh, so there's going to be later people that Paul addresses, which are the uh, sophists. These are great preachers, preachers who speak well. They're great philosophical-minded people. But the thing is, is they don't teach the gospel. Apollos isn't one of those people. Apollos is just a well-spoken preacher. He speaks well, and he knows the word. But he's different than Paul, as you guys have known. I mean, there's a wall of the different pastors that have been over the years, and a lot of you have been a part of this church for many years and have seen different styles of pastors come and go and lead you in different ways. The danger in that is to identify, say, well, this pastor did something better, or this pastor did something in a way that I like better than uh, this current pastor or the previous pastor or the pastor before him. Because as we go through, we're not going to read this, but in chapter three, Paul talks about the building up of a house for Christ has laid the foundation and those who are teachers start laying foundations on top of it, keep building up stone by stone. And he says, some lay uh, foundations of gold, some lay foundations of jewels, some lay foundations of straw. Now, we are not the ones to be the judge of whether that foundation is secure. In the end, God will come and shake the foundation, and whatever stays, they will receive glory for, and whatever falls, they will be commended or condemned for. So the saying is, we are not to be the ones that are the judge as to whether a time, a per the time a pastor spent in, over a church was good or not. We are to be there to encourage the believers there to have a community that seeks after Christ. That is our goal as a church, is to follow after Christ in communion together. When we start identifying with the names of people, we fall into some dangerous areas. So, if you don't mind, since I love history and I love church history, I'm going to read you guys something from church history. But I'm going to give you a little background first. So, around the 400s, we have the first church ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea was set up by Constantine to address an issue of the divinity of God. Like, how does God work? Because there was a man named Arius, and Arius taught that Jesus was made before the foundations of the world. That is a heresy, which means an incorrect teaching. And he was teaching this in the church, saying, well, Jesus was still God, but he was made before everything else. The other Christians at this time said, no, that is not how Jesus is Jesus is eternally with the Father, and so is the Spirit. It is three in one, the Trinity. It's one of the most basic uh, Christian tenets, and that's why we hold it as an ecumenical decree is the entire church. So this council gets together, and they meet, and they discuss, well, what do we believe as Christians? What is the true teaching of the Bible? And as they go through this, uh, Arius ends up getting condemned. They say, well, Arius is wrong, 
and they kick him out of the empire because Constantine is the ruler over all of the Roman Empire, which covers basically the whole known world at the time. And they kick him out. They say, well, you can't be a part of this empire because you're leading people into the false direction of a false doctrine of Christianity. But then Arius tries to come back and he ends up dying. Um, and if you want to know more about that, I'd love to have that conversation with you of how he dies because it's comical. Um, but this is what Athanasius says in response, because after the council, the people of the empire have been influenced by this teaching, this false teaching that is kind of set root. And the people start to identify with Arius. And this is what uh, Athanasius, the guy who wrote the Nicene Creed, says in response to those people. He says, those who are united with Arius bequeath the name of the Savior to us who were with Alexander. Thereafter, they are called Arians. They do not have the name of Athanasius, those who follow me. But Athanasius does not take his name from them. Rather, as it is the custom, they are called Christians. So what Athanasius is saying here is he's saying those who are rightly associated with God call themselves Christians, and those who are not follow the teachings of man. Those who follow the teachings of man start to identify with the names of men as who they are. So for the Arians, they said, we are Arians. They fall into this temptation of a false gospel, one where they choose to follow the created rather than the creator. So the next passage I want to look at is still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is an amazing chapter, um, but we're going to start in, this one came up actually. Let's go. All right. So verse 18, and we'll read through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in his own age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in, boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, and the present future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, the reason you have these divisions is because you find yourself prideful. You think you're wise in what is best for the church, what is best to be done. You say, oh, well, Paul did it better, or Apollos did it better, or the guy before him did it better. But that is not the submission that we should have to God because that is putting our own wisdom into the wisdom of God. And in comparison, the wisdom of God far outreaches the wisdom of humanity. But here, here we see that whenever we try to take our wisdom and apply it to the way the church should look, it causes troubles. Whether that be uh, divisions whether that be strife, if we look at uh, 1 Corinthians, it also leads to sexual immorality because that's what the people started to fall into. It is Because these divisions and strife, people started to say, oh, well, we can't even figure out what we're going to do in the church, so I'm going to do whatever I want in my lifestyle, and I'm going to start, uh, well, one of them sleeps with his stepmom. And so we have this degradation of what is unity in the sense of what is unity as a church body and what is unity as in the understanding of how we should act morally. 
It's a dangerous game we play whenever we try to become wise in our own mind. The Bible talks a lot about that. And so the wisdom of the world is one that says humanity can figure out what they want to do. Humanity has the answers in themselves. But the wisdom of God is something that is totally different. That wisdom itself comes from God and is imparted to humanity through devotion to him. This reminds me of Paul whenever he goes to the Mars Hill conversation. So Mars Hill was in Athens, and Athens had this big uh, like building set up where philosophers would come and argue with each other, as philosophers do, uh, about everything. About the nature of reality, about the nature of God, of how God exists. And while Paul was going in, he saw this statue for the unknown God. And he looks at the statue, and he goes into the, uh, I can't remember what it's called, I think it's the Pantheon. Anyway, he goes in there, and he starts to talk with him and say, hey, you know that unknown God? Well, that God is Jesus, and he is the Savior of the world, and he will bring back the resurrection of all people, of all the dead, and he will redeem those who follow after him. And he basically tells them the gospel by giving them a like kind of philosophical debate in that sense. He speaks to them in the manner that they would understand in the philosophical mindset. He didn't sit down and say, hey, you remember that Jew, Jewish prophecy that said that there's going to be a Messiah that comes and he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel and the line of David? He doesn't do that because they wouldn't have cared. Instead, he approaches them in the way, in the manner that is fitting. And he transcends their knowledge because it says some of them sat there and scoffed at what he said, at the resurrection of the dead. Because the Greeks thought that was absurd, that once you're dead, you're dead. And you can go in this cycle and kind of reincarnate and come back out eventually. Or if you're really good, you could find like the plain of Elysium and live there eternally forever in happiness. So to them, no one would want to be resurrected because that was a lower status in their minds of the afterlife. But he uses the arguments of the gospel rather than the arguments of man to influence these people. It could have been very easy, like a lot of us probably would do in apologetics, which is the argumentation for people on our faith, whether that be on Facebook or the YouTube comments of a video that we didn't like. Uh, my generation is known and notorious for that. Um, to watch these YouTube videos and then leave a paragraph that just makes you look like someone who's fighting a fight that can't be won. We can't a fight in the church with our own personal knowledge because we're called to a higher standard of that. We're to accept God as the ultimate authority in our life and submitting to him means that we are to trust in his wisdom, not our own personal wisdom. Because if we do that, it causes problems. It causes disunity. causes moral deprivation. And if we look at the history of the church, it causes heresies. So then what does godly wisdom look like and how do we have faith in it? Well, if you look at Proverbs, and I'll read this one off my iPad because I lost my marker in there. If we look at Proverbs chapter 3, 3 through 12, this is what godly wisdom looks like. It says, 
Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father and son in whom he delights. We're to trust God with everything. Everything that we have, all that we are, everything we've gained is to be trusted with God. Not in our own understanding, not as, is the best way to handle this, in my opinion, this way? Maybe. But is that what God has for us? And a lot of times those answers are no. A lot of times whenever we try to think about, well, what do we do in this situation? We forget that we have a God that we can trust. In this sense, with the loss of our pastor, it seems like a scary situation, right? Y'all been in it before. Before I came, there was two years without a pastor. The leadership without a leader in present seems like a scary time. It seems like a time of confusion and chaos, much like it seems 1 Corinthians is addressing. But instead, we don't serve man. The chaos can be mitigated by Christ, because he is our unity. We are one with him. James, I believe, talks about how we have one baptism, there was one, resurre- or, there was one resurrection, one death, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and that is the unity of all. That we are one with Christ, we are one in his suffering, we are one in his leadership, and we are one body sought after him. We get the image that we are a bride of Christ. And if we want to play a dangerous game, we can marry the bride to somebody else. Because whenever we try to lead in a manner that, or not lead, excuse me, when we try to put a leader in the place of God, it leads to destruction. Because humans fail. Even Christian ones, ah, Probably more than most, actually, because we see how we can fail. As Paul writes in Romans, for the law illuminated the sin which I had had and made me aware of the things that I have done. We're the same way. This should illuminate us and allow us to see our shortcomings and maybe the things that we've done well. And it should be an encouragement that we serve a good and gracious God, one who forgives and leads and is the author of peace. So what we get from this in 1 Corinthians So we get, number one, that we are united in love and faith. Proverbs said that we are to adorn it like a jewel and a necklace, that it is something that we should wear around our necks with pride and honor. If we look at the ancient world, wearing a necklace like that uh, is something that marks you as distinct. And if you go to OBU's ceremonies for graduation, 
or something along those lines. The president of the university has this big gold chain and on it sits a big round circle and then there's gold like brackets that go around and then they go around his shoulders. That's a mark of distinction that he wears with honor because that means that he is the president of the university and has an endowment, which means that the things that he does is for the authority of the person who paid for his position. We are like that with Christ. Whenever we have love and faith, that is like that amulet, that what we do is for God and that he is the one who has paid for us to do the good work which he has set us apart for. That it is not by our own doing that we do these things or our own authority, but it is just through the authority of Christ. And this love and faith that we have, the faith after God and the love for others, is what unites us as one. This is something that's repeated over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Think about what uh, Christ says is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Be faithful is what he's saying. And love your neighbor as yourself. So if we love God with everything that we have, we're being faithful to the commands and the precedent that he sets. And if we love others then we are showing God's faithfulness to those around us, encouraging them to seek after God more holy as well. The second thing that we can get from this is that we have to recognize that growth is from God, not from man. Paul writes about it as we looked at, that Paul might have planted the seed and Apollos came by and watered it. And if it grows, that's awesome. But that's not because Paul or Apollos Growth doesn't come from people. I don't know how many of you have tried planting something uh, like myself and growing a plant and then within two weeks you forget to water it and it dies and withers away. Uh, that seems to be the continual cycle of my house is I buy a plant, think, oh, I can grow this and it dies. Currently, I'm trying to grow some redbud seeds that I took some dirt out of the ground outside and it's growing grass instead of redbud seeds. Uh, so... I am not the author of growth. I cannot control what grows in that pot. Only God can. But in the church, pastors are not the author of growth. They might help along the growth, the sharing of the gospel, the reaching of the community, but it is ultimately God who is working in that place. Because humanity can't do anything apart from him. So we should look towards him, not towards people. Recognizing that he is the growth means that we put our faith and trust firmly in him. And it is one that we will not be disappointed in. And the last one here is that we should trust in the wisdom of God. Now the wisdom of God is this big topic that theologians, which I'm like a minuscule theologian since I'm training, uh, like to talk about, right? Godly wisdom, wisdom that comes from God. The idea of wisdom being of God, a lot of theologians like to point to John, where he says, uh, the word was God and the word was with God, referring to Christ. But he uses the word logos, which means wisdom as well. So wisdom and word in the Greek are the same word. We say, ah, oh, well, the wisdom of God is this, or the wisdom of God is that. The wisdom of God is Christ. And that's what John is pointing to. He's saying, the wisdom of God can be fully seen and fully realized in the person of Christ. In the life that he lived, the ministry he had, and the way that he trusted and was obedient to God to the very end. 
because he himself was God. So the entirety of Christ's life is the obedience and true revelation of wisdom of God because he was God himself. We were going through the I am statements with Pastor Daniel, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying there is no one can see the Father unless they follow after Christ. But then he also says the statement that if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father also. If you've seen Christ and the wisdom of Christ, and I'm saying not his personal wisdom, but the wisdom that is Christ, then you've seen God also because he himself is God. So we are to trust in him, the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible here, because God revealed these words to Paul and the other apostles that write these things as encouragement for the church. We are to trust in them because of the author, not because of the writer. In the same way, we trust in pastors because of the message, not because of the message bringer. So trust in the wisdom of God. Allow all other distractions to be left alone. I talked with the youth on Wednesday, on and we read uh, Ephesians chapter 3, I believe. And he talks about setting our sights towards the goal, which is Christ. And as we push forward, all other things fade away. I think this is a perfect picture of trusting in the wisdom of God. As we set our mind onto the things of God, then all the follies and all the uh, disputes or upset feelings that are minuscule in the comparison to the grand scheme of God's created order, all things seem to fade away. We're not burdened by these bickerings or quarrels or maybe moral failures that happen as we see in 1 Corinthians happening. But instead, we focus on what truly matters which is the work of God that he has assigned to us as believers in him. So trust in his wisdom and his glory. He has providence. He knows what's going to happen next, even when we do not. He knows who's going to come and fill this position, and he knows when it's going to come. And we have to have faith that he has perfect timing, that whenever we need him here or whoever God's placed here to be here, will be the right time and in the right manner that'll bring glory to him. It's not about us. Now, I don't want to mitigate from the pastor search committee. I want to thank you for everything you have done and will start up doing again. But you especially have to trust in God. If you do not trust in God and try to rely on your own understanding, it leads to separation and destruction. Same way Adam and Eve, they relied on themselves more than they relied on God. They said, I want to be as smart and as wise as God. Give me the fruit. Be wise, not in yourselves, but wise in God. If you'll bow your heads with me, I'll pray. And musicians, if you'd mind, come up. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for today. I pray that you would be with each and every person here. I pray that you would guide them and fill them with your spirit. I pray that they would have faith and love that you call them to. 
I pray that you would mend the broken hearts that have come from uh, the situation, Lord. And I pray that we would have faith that you will continue to work through this and continue to grow. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.